Welcome to Series 2 of Finding Home, a podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. This podcast is presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland, Ohio. Series 2 features interviews of Clevelanders talking about an array of topics relating to the history of the Irish in our city. Please excuse any variation in audio quality as these interviews have been conducted over the phone and over Zoom. Support for Series 2 of Finding Home comes from the Michael Talty and Helen Talty Charitable Trust. Thanks so much for listening, and please enjoy. Hi, I'm Margaret Lynch, Executive Director of the Irish American Archives Society, returning to a second series of our podcast series, Finding Home. We're going to be doing interviews with local people who know more about certain topics than I do. And our very first guest in that regard is Kevin O'Toole. He is a trustee on the board of the Irish American Archives Society, but more importantly, he is the great-grandson of world championship boxer Johnny Kilbane. Thank you very much for joining us today, Kevin. We're really glad to have you. My pleasure. Great to be here. I would like to start, we're not going to so much focus on Johnny Kilbane's boxing career, and more on the task that you've been undertaking for a number of years now, which is sort of collecting all the information possible about him and trying to present it to the public. You are the great-grandson. Can you let us know a little bit about the um, family and the how you came to be the person who uh, has become sort of the standard-bearer for collecting this information in your family? Yes. So Johnny Kilbane was, was born and raised in Cleveland, he had two daughters. Uh, unfortunately, one of his daughters died when she was quite young. She was about six. So then the surviving daughter, uh, Mary Kilbane, is my grandmother. And so Mary Kilbane was uh, born and raised in Cleveland, had two, two sons. One of them is my father, Tom. The other is my uncle, John. When I was uh, very young, uh, only about four months old, my father moved our family to Virginia. So um, I was raised in Virginia. We would come to visit occasionally, you know, to visit my grandmother and, and other relatives in the Cleveland area, but my childhood was spent in Virginia. Frankly, growing up, we didn't talk a lot about the family connection uh, to Johnny Kilbane, and it wasn't until my grandmother died in 1993, and I started to kind of go through her garage and her attic and, and go through some of the things that um, she had there, that um, obviously there was a lot of information, a lot of memorabilia, a lot of uh, memories of Johnny. And that kind of started my journey of learning uh, more deeply about him and, and, and our family. Kevin, could you tell us a little bit about your grandmother and why you think she saved so much? Because she didn't just save a little bit of memorabilia, I'd say. She saved a lot of stuff. Could you tell us a little bit about why you think she might have saved all that and, and how that collection came about? Yeah, so she had a very strong connection to her father, um, like a lot of people do, right? You grow up and you, your parents are the people that you initially respect the most and they form who you are as a person. Um, when she was young and being formed as a person, her father was the featherweight champion of the world. So she had experiences like, you know, going to England and meeting the queen and being able to play violin uh, for the queen. Very unusual, of course, um, not all of us. To say the least. <laughs> um, and so, of course, through that, she developed um, a very deep love for her parents, her father, particularly a deep respect for him. And so all throughout life, you know, wanted to please him and do things that, 
you would be proud of her. Um, and so she saved a lot of his scrapbooks, a lot of things, um, being somebody that was in the public eye, there was quite a bit of newspaper articles and, and things that were readily available in, in the popular press or, or other ways. And so she was very proud of that and always kind of kept that as, as any of us would of something that you're proud of. Um, and so, you know, over time, she just accumulated a lot of that. When her parents died in the 50s, you know, a lot of people that had been through the depression were kind of trained to keep everything. Um, and so that was a mentality that she had. We didn't have a lot. Um, certainly, like most people that lived through the depression, lost everything. And we've talked previously about Johnny having to reinvent himself and didn't have any of the kind of wealth that he had accumulated in boxing. So, you know, going through the depression, being a... a a person that grew up in that era, she, she saved a lot. And part of that was her famous father, but also that was just kind of how people were at that time is making sure that they maintain family memories and, and anything that was potentially valuable to the family. So that, that was her. She was very proud of her family and her father. Um, and so consequently kept, you know, quite a bit, a treasure, treasure trove as it turned out. Um, did she leave it in an uh, organized way, Kevin, or was it all just jammed in there? What state did you find it in? Yeah, so there was a few things that I suppose were uh, memorable to her that were in the main part of her house, right? So there was a few photos, a few um, pictures she was very proud of. He was in the Cleveland Boxing or the Cleveland uh, Sports Hall of Fame. So a few things that she had up on her walls. Um, so there was a guest room in, the, in her house that she had a few items up. So, so yes, very few items. The majority of them were in boxes that were stored in her garage that I didn't know existed. I had never seen. Nobody in our family really had known they existed or, or, or had seen. How did you become involved in the effort to, you know, sort of look at what was in the garage because you were living out of town or had you come back to Cleveland by that point? So it was a result of her passing in 1993. And so she was living alone in a small house in Fairview Park. And when she died, um, you know, of course, we came for the funeral. And then, you know, we were responsible as a family to get together and, and figure out what to do with her possessions, the house, etc. And through that process, you know, obviously, we started going through the garage and other areas. I have an interest in sports. Um, I have some knowledge, not a lot, but some knowledge of sports memorabilia or facts. And so by default, I was the one that was kind of recognizing things as we were going through them. Oh, that's interesting. That's relative to the sports world, or somebody might find that interesting. The rest of the family didn't necessarily have that same connection or interest. And so I, by default, I was the one that said, well, we, we probably shouldn't get rid of really any of those items. And so we kind of packed them up in a U-Haul and took most of them to Virginia and then over the course of a period of time, as I had time to go through them, started to understand the significance of what was there and, and learn more about, you know, what I was finding. But it wasn't initially when we went to the garage, it was more, yes, let's take that box and keep it. Let's not throw it away, as opposed to really appreciating it at the time. How old were you then, Kevin? So I was, uh, had just graduated from college, so I was 21. It was the summer after I had graduated, so still didn't have much of a career still had a lot to learn about life. So um, it, was good. it was an interesting time for me. And what, how did you come by your interest in sports and sports memorabilia? Yeah, so for, for me, it was something just growing up that was an interest. Um, I played baseball. Baseball was kind of my sport. 
collected baseball cards like a lot of kids did, you know, traded them, et cetera. Um, and so just developed an interest as a kid following a sport that I loved and played. And baseball cards were kind of an extension of that. So that was the foundation of my interest in sports. I wasn't a boxing fan. I wasn't, you know, didn't know anything about the sport. We didn't, we didn't talk about that as a family. So it wasn't until I found items in my grandmother's um, kind of garage that developed an interest in, in, in boxing and boxing memorabilia. And coincidentally, there were sort of the boxing equivalent to a baseball trading cards. There were um, cards, memorabilia type of cards with Johnny Kilbane's image that you found among your grandmother's stuff, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's correct. There was a very broad spectrum of items from cards to letters, pictures, um, scrapbooks. You know, there was even uh, promotional cards for maybe jobs that he had had. You know, he at one point sold for a whiskey distributor. So there was uh, little promotional cards for the whiskey. There was, you know, he ran for public office. So there might have been Johnny Kilbane for sheriff as an advertisement. Right. So things that weren't necessarily related to sports, things that were related to sports. So his belt, championship belt that he had, or, you know, uh, there was a, a suitcase and it was just full of boxing gloves, gloves that he had used to train or wow. you know, in his fights. There wasn't any kind of uh, designation of these gloves were used for this purpose, but, you know, probably uh, eight or 10 pairs of gloves that was just really interesting to, to find. You know, of course, the material was very weathered and over the course of 100 years, um, you know, they've broken down, you know, we didn't have them restored, but they had been in the, uh, the suitcase for, I don't know, probably 50 years without anybody even opening the suitcase, I presume. So, that's, that's pretty um, amazing. When you open something like that, I mean, that's a very personal item. He, those were actually on his hands. You must yes. have felt a, a strong personal connection to, you know, those gloves when you opened that suitcase. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I, I put them on. I just felt, you know, what do they feel like? I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't a boxer, but just to know those were ones that he had used was a pretty cool experience. Mm -hmm. Of course, they were weathered and they weren't terribly comfortable. But, right. you know, in, in hindsight, or if you talk to somebody that's maybe in the memorabilia space, they will mm. try to convince you to do everything to preserve them. Don't touch them. The oils from your fingers. I, I didn't care about that at the time. Um, and, and frankly, I don't care as much about that now because it's not a, a money-making endeavor or something that I'm doing for, you know, because they're valuable. It was more than personal connection. And so, right. you know, handling them and experiencing them um, was a big part of the joy for me. And just opening a different box or opening a different suitcase and going through it and finding different items was was very enjoyable for me personally. Um, you, you just didn't know what you were going to find. Right. Everything that I found was was, was new. Right. Like, <laughs> hey, here's a postcard that he sent when he traveled to Ireland. Here's a mm -hmm. letter that a fan wrote him about an experience. Here's some promotional cards that he might have signed if people you know wrote to him in the mail, or you know, all mm -hmm. kinds of various things. And each of them, in their own right, was just very interesting. Right. Well, what about one of the most interesting things you found at the end of the day would have to be, I would say, the vintage film footage of his 1912 championship fight. How did you come across them? What state were they in? <laughs> Tell us about how you felt when you found those. Yeah, so that, that was an interesting find. As I mentioned, you know, everything that I opened was you know, I didn't know what was what I was going to find. So there was a, a, a large, a fairly large steel box, and it had his name kind of written on top in uh, in paint. And when I opened it up, what I found was a old movie projector, so a reel-to-reel -reel projector. 
And then there was also a container that had uh, metal tins, which obviously ended up being bite films. And there was probably, um, if I remember right, maybe 10 or 12 different canisters. And they were in varying states. None of them were good. What I learned later was that they were in very bad shape. But when I opened them up, they had a distinct smell, a very bad smell, actually. <laughs> like something that was um, not food rotting, but something that was rotting. Uh-huh. Um, and, and very um, like rust, a uh-huh. lot of rust in the, in the box. My hands were covered in orange. Uh-huh. Um, and that's because some of the, the containers had rusted all the way through um, and started to deteriorate even the film itself. And so oh not all gosh. of the films were at a place where they were, uh, you know, you could watch them. But yeah. similar to the gloves where I just found it was interesting, I had a film projector, I had films. So naturally I said, great, let me try to play them, see what's on them. So I tried that. Not surprisingly, the projector did not work very well. And I realized very quickly that if I went much further, I'd probably damage the films. Right. So I could, I could hold them up to the light and I could see similar to what you do with a picture negative. Oh, I right. could see, oh, that's a, a person or that's a boxer. Uh, that Maybe that's a match. Maybe that's a, a picture in nature. So I could start to understand a little bit of what was on the films. They were labeled, but not real well. A couple of them were labeled, you know, Kilbane, Attell. So I knew they were from the championship fight. So I had some direction there. But I was very limited in my ability to, to kind of actually watch them. So that started a, a, a very lengthy process of, well, who can I call or who can I contact that would even understand what this is, treat them with respect and understand how fragile and, and how you know, unique they were to, to take advantage of that opportunity. So that was a process that I started that ultimately ended, well, it ended the first plateau with uh, contacting Frank Stallone. So Frank Stallone is fairly well known in his own right, but probably more popularly known as Sylvester Stallone's brother. Brother. Uh, and okay. Um, he is a very big uh, boxing collector, very well known in the kind of boxing collector space. And so I reached out did to you, him. Did you have to, backing up for a minute, so not knowing a lot about boxing collecting, you had to do that research to figure out who a big boxing collector might be, who yes. might be able to help you. And Yes. You know. And so from my um, interest in, you know, general sports collecting, I, I knew how to get in touch with some people, mm-hmm. but uh, boxing collecting is a, is a very specialized area. So even in the memorabilia collecting world, you know, there, there's people that deal in, let's say, baseball cards or baseball memorabilia. doesn't mean they they know boxing. And so through that, I had to ask a lot of questions. I would call, hey, who knows anything about boxing? Well, I don't know. You might want to call this guy out of Chicago. I don't know. You might want to talk to this guy who I met two years ago. So it it probably took me six months to a year to to find truly, which is a very small subset of people that understand and appreciate boxing. Mm -hmm. And that's, those are the people that said, Frank Stallone is, is probably the one contact that has a contact in that can help you with what you're doing. And uh, so it um, took a, a lot of research to get there. And did somebody give you some contact information for him so that you could contact him directly? So eventually I got in touch with an auction house out of Chicago called Mastro, which is no longer in existence, but they frequently did, uh, were, were very big in the sports memorabilia world and did auctions specific to that. And a segment of that was boxing. And so through that, they knew that Frank Stallone was a frequent purchaser of items or very involved in the boxing memorabilia community suggested that I contact him with my questions about, you know, what do I do with these films? 
Were you so, reluctant to reach out to him, or did you feel because you had this ace of Johnny Kil- the name Johnny Kilbane, did you feel that you might have a chance of getting to him? You know, I didn't think about it that way. I thought about it as kind of a quest of research, and this was somebody that could help me. I didn't think about it in terms of you know what somebody might say no or might not be willing to help me. Um, I felt like if I had you know the Mastro Auction House, which was a credible auction house, mm-hmm. and I had. If he's truly into boxing memorabilia, Johnny Kilbane would be a, gonna, a huge hit yeah. for him that he would right. take my call. And, and that's actually ended up what happened. He was obviously very intrigued by Johnny Kilbane. It's not every day you get contacted by, you know, the relative of a, of a boxer who you're you know, very familiar with. In hindsight, maybe I should have been a little bit more leery of contacting, but no, I, I just reached out and said, here's my, here's my story. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. So he became an advocate for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, Look, there's really only a couple of people that know how to handle these old films. Mm-hmm. And um, he had been connected with a company called Big Fights. And Big Fights was the owner of the majority of historical boxing films in the world. Wow. And there was a couple of people that had started that, which he was friendly with. Um, so he had a relationship with them. They ended up selling their inventory to ESPN for multiple millions of dollars. So ESPN could license historical fights. Most okay. of them were popular Muhammad Ali type fights, right. but of course they had um, smaller ones um, that they were interested in as well. And so through that, they said, hey, there's really only one guy that I would recommend. He's in Pennsylvania. He's kind of an older guy. And what he does is go frame by frame and transfer them into a medium that's more current, that's more you know advanced in terms of how we watch film today. And, and that's what's going to happen. And so it's going to take, you know, quite a bit to, to get this happen. So send me the films or send me a couple of them and I'll get them in touch with this guy and we'll kind of go through this process of trying to get them restored. So that, that's how he eventually helped me there. Frank Stallone offered to actually be the go-between in terms of actually getting the films to this Pennsylvania guy. Correct. Wow. Um, and so what was really interesting is, um, you know, I, I'm not a film collector. I'm not, I don't, you know, deal in film. I don't, I don't know anything about film, right? I just knew that I had these canisters. They were kind of rusty. Frank Stallone was willing to help. So Frank gave me his address out in California. He said, hey, mail them out to me. So I did. I packaged them up in a box. I put them in a trash bag. I packed them in a box, um, you know, protected them with, you know, bubble wrap and those sorts of things, but otherwise didn't know what I was doing. So I, I put them in this box and sent them out to Frank. A couple of days later, I get a call from Frank. And he's incredulous. He's like, well, I got your box. You didn't tell me the condition he's in. This is a whole, he used the term kettle of fish. (laughs) This is a whole nother kettle of fish and what I was prepared to deal with. So what he meant by that was, he said, look, some of these films are nitrate films. Nitrate (laughs) films have been illegal to possess in the United States for like 50 years because they spontaneously combust. They're extremely <laughs> flammable. You should not have them anywhere near your house. Of course, I, I didn't know this. My yeah. family knew this. They had been in my grandmother's attic in this state for years and years, right. apparently with huge risk of fire, which we didn't know about. <laughs> oh, um, my God. <laughs> so I think even in hindsight, uh, they would have been illegal to mail them. There's right. all kinds of hazardous materials. Which again, I didn't know about. And interesting that I found that out luckily after they were already after you already did it. And (laughs) you know, I mean, I'm sure you wrapped them carefully, but not carefully enough for what they actually were, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, not 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 for a flammable object, right? For a brittle object or very you know fragile, yes, yeah, but not for a flammable object. 
Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, so, it's better that you didn't so know. It was, it was better that I knew, very much so. So he then got in touch with the gentleman in Pennsylvania, sent it to him. It took probably a year. He could only do one of the reels because of the cost and the time it takes to do it. So he took the, there was two films that were labeled the championship fight, the first half and the second half. And so picked the second half because that was when he won. Oh. Presumably had the moment of him you know, raising his hand and, and that kind of piece. So that's what we settled on was to do that one. So after about six months or a year, he sent me a master tape, which you know, again, I don't know much about the film industry, but apparently is, is kind of what you would make copies off of. It's a, it's a very you know, industry standard mm -hmm. process, process that right. we do. And then also sent me a VHS tape of it. And that was the first time that I could actually watch it. I remember sitting in my home, putting it into the VCR and watching. It ended up being about 25 minutes of just raw footage, mm -hmm. um, which was just awesome to see. Mm -hmm. um, it, it included the fight, but it also included a little bit after the fight where Johnny and, and Ava tell interacting with each other, shaking their hands. Um, it showed some pictures of the crowd. It showed some pictures of the arena. I say pictures, video of yeah. the arena, you know, the old school cars. So this was in 1912. The cars at the time traveling around what the outside of the arena looked like, what the marquee looked like. Um, mm. Some really cool images, not just boxing wise, but just historical wise to see, mm -hmm. you know, what, what life was like at that period of time. So really elated to get that back and be able to watch it and share it with my family, you know, for us to all watch it. And if I'm remembering correctly, there was some other elements or some other factors at play that enabled you to go through with this project. You identified, with the help of Frank Stallone, identified uh, this gentleman to, to restore. But we also, at the same time, you had found your way to the Irish American Archives Society. We had agreed to uh, help commemorate the championship fight. It was getting towards 2012 at this point in time. And we were working with the Cleveland Public Library in order to create a display that would be up at the library for a while and maybe travel around a little bit. And there was a lot of interest at the library in sort of helping preserve this footage, if I remember correctly. Do you... Yes. So if I can provide a little bit of context before, you know, talking about the library. And sure. Component. So while we were going through this process with Frank Stallone, you know, he was telling me it's very expensive. I'm cashing in all the favors that I have. He was positioning it as, but this is very difficult. We probably can't do all of them. We can just do the one. Yeah. Which again, I was, I was grateful for just to be able to see anything. So I had continued research. I continued to learn who else could possibly do this. Um, and through that process, I had actually found someone that was out of Kansas City. And he did this almost as a hobby to start. But there was a famous uh, fight film collector out of Chicago, an old policeman that had been doing a lot of work. And he had recently died. But this gentleman had done all the preservation work for the, the Chicago policeman. So through, through my research, I eventually got in touch with this guy, and he had demonstrated the capability. He had done some other fight films from probably 100 years ago, a similar process where he would take one you know, frame at a time. As I understand it, kind of take a picture of that and put it on another medium, do it frame by frame until you do the entire, the entire reel. And so he had demonstrated this capability. So I became aware of him and aware of his capabilities. At that time, the Irish American Archives Society was partnering with the Cleveland Public Library. There was an interest in, Morgan, as you had said, to kind of preserve that and, and maybe do a display. And so the public library helped them to step, stepped in to help and said, 
we'd be willing to help fund um, to maybe get a few of these other films looked at if you have a resource that could do it. Um, and so through the generosity of the Cleveland Public Library, we were able to send a couple of the, um, the films that we hadn't done any work with to this gentleman. And he was actually able to preserve about five or six additional reels. So about half of the reels that we originally found deteriorated to the point where we, we, we literally no, couldn't do anything with them. Mm -hmm. And there was two of them that were of nitrate material, which we then found we should not and cannot transport them anywhere in the United States in any form or fashion without breaking the law or being irresponsible. So the remaining five or six, through the help of the public library, we sent them to this guy and he was able to restore them. And so we got the full fight that was the championship fight. We also were able to restore the entire fight that happened in Cleveland at League Park um, in, in the early 20s. Um, oh. And League Park at the time was home of the Cleveland Indians, but also hosted other events. It was a major event at the time. And so we were able to get that entire fight film transferred. And then the other were some training footage, which is just incredible. One is of the, before Johnny uh, was fighting in California for the championship, him training on the beach, him interacting with his family. And then mm -hmm. before the uh, Danny Fresh fight, uh, which was held here in Cleveland at League Park, both of them training. And, um, oh my gosh. and then heading into the, um, the, the fight where he eventually lost his championship, um, a little bit of, of that. But really interesting footage of uh, property in Vermilion that Johnny owned at the time, him training uh, my grandmother, her actually playing the violin, just like you might have a home movie nowadays. This is what was recorded then her playing the violin for, for Johnny. Um, so some great footage, family footage that was not necessarily related to boxing. We were able to restore all of that. So at the end, we probably have six reels of film that were transferred into a medium that we could put it on, you know, VHS or now DVD to be able to watch. So ultimately that was more successful than the, the Frank Stallone path through the generosity of the Cleveland Public Library and the Irish American Archives Society ultimately got to a place where now we have kind of a full inventory of what, what was available. And uh, we were able to um, work together, all of us worked together to show the 1912 fight film footage at the Cleveland Public Library um, during that time period. You did another talk for us at PJ McIntyre's one time, and I think you showed a little yes. bit of it then. So you have it now in way that you can, you know, somewhat share it. But of course, you're not out there every day showing this stuff. But I believe we had, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we ended up having an arrangement with Cleveland Public Library. Is this stuff in their collection, a copy of it in their collection now? It, it is. The ones that they were able to restore, um, obviously, it, for their help, you know, they have it in their collection. Yes. Right. Um, it, it's raw footage. So at times when I've used it, I've, you know, kind of cut it down to maybe three or four minutes that might be interesting for people. Right. Um, it's difficult to watch a black and white film with no sound. Uh, most people lose interest after a few minutes, even the hardcore. So, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, when I've shown it publicly, I've, I've kind of cut it down to a couple minutes and then wrapped around some, some commentary to try to help you know, speed it along and make it more interesting. People understand what they're watching. Right. Yes. Um, what happened to that nitrate film footage? Who has it? And does it still exist somewhere in the world? <laughs> it, it does exist. It's actually in a vault 
that was uh, originally part, I mentioned this uh, company called Big Fights, which had most of the right. historical fight films in their possession. It's part of that kind of collection. There's a, a gentleman out in Las Vegas that has for years has been trying to start a Hall of Fame for boxing. Um. The, the International Boxing Hall of Fame, the, the recognized Hall of Fame that's the main one, is in New York. So he, the gentleman in Las Vegas, assumed all the intellectual property from the Big Fights company. And so he's trying to start a Hall of Fame based on that. So it's through his connections that it's in a vault that's protected. I I do not expect I will ever see that again. In your um, life, it's right. It's transferred into a format that I can use. I'm not interested in having nitrate films anywhere near me. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> did Big Fight take ownership of it for having connected and made possible the restoration? Or do you still have no. the ownership of it? Well, only, only, we still have ownership of it only for protection purposes, right? So they have right. a way to store and handle right. that type of material. Exactly. Um, and so for that purpose, yes. Right. I still have the other films. Um, they're in a box. They're not in great condition, but, you know, I, I still have those. So mm -hmm. theoretically, if we had an old, I think they're eight millimeter, if we had an old eight millimeter reel, we could play them, but uh -huh. I probably don't recommend Right, them. right. Do you think that the family might have watched these occasionally or friends or guests at yeah. Vermilion or? I, I, I would think so. Through my research, I found that the movie rights, they called a movie rights at the time, um, were split between Johnny and Ava Tell. There was oh. a company that has long been out of business, filmed it and had the rights. So yes, I would expect because of the projector and the, and the different films, um, yeah, I would expect they would have watched them many, many times. Mm -hmm. um, but they had not, to my knowledge, ever been in the public view, except um, it was common after a big boxing match, um, if there were television rights, to show them at theaters, um, Hippodrome theaters, and in Cleveland and, and around the world. And I have found articles and research that that talked about that, right? So they would advertise, mm -hmm. we have the moving picture rights for whatever price of admission, you would go to a movie house at the drone theater and view them. So that, that would have been common for a couple of years after the fight, but then, you know, interest, interest would have waned. Right. There'd be other fights or other movies that people would be interested in seeing. Right. Um, but yeah, I would expect that the family would have viewed them probably not past much past when he died in the 50s. But right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the film um, was probably the most, the biggest challenge uh, in terms of looking at the legacy and memorabilia and all the things that your grandmother had saved. The film was probably the biggest single challenge, but you've also managed to pull together a lot of this material, a lot of the information garnered over these years on a website, johnnykilbane.com. You want to tell us a little bit about the website and what you've pulled together on that and how you were able, for example, to reconstruct his fight record and things like that? Yeah. So as we talked about, you know, my interest really started or my awareness really started after my grandmother's death. And so what I did was I created the website as a way to kind of capture what I was learning. So I would go through a box and that would lead to some questions and I might research what whatever I found, what that was about. And then I would put that information up on the website as a way to capture that. So interesting newspaper articles I would, I would post. Um, interesting photos or pieces of memorabilia, I would take a picture and put them up. And it was just a way for me to kind of chronicle what I was learning. And what it ended up being was a, a vehicle for people to kind of reach out and maybe share stories, mm -hmm. which was a huge part of why I started as well. 
And, and to this day, I still get not, not a high volume, but maybe a couple of times a year, somebody will reach out through the website and say, look, I had a connection to Johnny or my family is related. Um, so I started a genealogy section there. And obviously, Margaret, through your help, created most of that <laughs> and learned most of that information. But people frequently reach out, hey, you know, I'm cousins with Johnny. And do you know how I'm cousins with Johnny? So it's a way to kind of capture that information and share information. I found people don't read it to the extent that they can find out they're not directly related. So we typically have that conversation offline, which is fine. But occasionally people will share memories or stories. And that's more information I could put on the website. So it's been a great vehicle to communicate with people that otherwise wouldn't have um, from all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've heard from people in Australia, people in Germany, obviously Ireland and, and Cleveland area predominantly, but mm-hmm. um, it's, it's been a really great tool to kind of keep the conversation going and, and continue to learn. And that fight record, it wasn't like somebody, there was some pre-existing, you know, fight record that you could just pull off easily. I mean, you've kind of done a lot of work to construct the various matches and especially the early ones and figure out who won and how, you know, et cetera, how many yeah. rounds it went. You've had to do a lot of work to research all that, haven't you? I have, and, I, and I've learned there's not a standard record that has much credibility, frankly, mm-hmm. and, and I'll explain what that means. Um, so there is records of historical boxers, right? They'll say they fought, whatever, 140 fights, and here's who they fought and what the outcome was. And so I had a place to start. What I learned was as I went fight by fight and went back and maybe read the Cleveland Plain Dealer or the Cleveland Leader at the time, the account in the newspaper or account of other things that I was able to find did all, did not always match up with what the generally accepted record was. So as I went through that and, and researched individual fight bout by bout, I would I would come to a different conclusion based on what my research revealed. And so I would update kind of the fight record. There's mm-hmm. a few fights that I found that were not otherwise captured. I didn't find any that we changed the outcome, but what was very common at the time was the match would be declared a draw. And frequently that was predetermined that unless somebody was knocked out, it would be a draw. Mm-hmm. And so if there was 140 fights, if a hundred of them were classified as draw, you know, the newspaper always, because they wanted to generate interest in their newspaper, they would always pick a winner. They would say it was declared a draw, but Johnny won handily because X, Y, Z, he was faster, right. he fought better, et cetera. Or sometimes the reverse, you know, the hometown, he might fight in Philadelphia against a Philadelphia fighter and the paper would say, oh, this fighter definitely had the better of Johnny and he won. And, you know, if it wasn't a no decision, et cetera, which obviously there's biases and like right. there is in the media today, of course, right. um, in, in everything you read. So there's really not a definitive record, but what I tried to do was understand all the information I could figure out and, and what was the most likely truth mm-hmm. um, and then capture that. And, right. and most of that led to verification of what was out there. But some of it, you know, was I had to change what was commonly accepted as. as mm-hmm. Right, truth. right. And yes, as you mentioned before, another element to the website is the genealogy section and particularly enjoy that in a way because I get some queries, too. Um, As the director of the Irish American Archive Society, people telling me that they're related to Johnny Kilbane. And we have to, um, I know that you do it all the time, Kevin, and I'm just following your footsteps, really emphasize he only had one surviving daughter. (laughs) He had no no siblings in Cleveland, you know, etc. It was a very narrow, direct line. However, it doesn't mean, and someone came to me one day and I was very, you know, like, ready to say, and they they had a Kilbane grandfather, 
but it was actually their grandmother was a Haney who could have been related to your great great you know Johnny's grandmother <laughs> which is how far back it goes Johnny's your great grandfather's grandmother was a Haney and this family could have actually you know been related to her and he insisted my grandmother said you know she was cousins with Johnny Kilbane but of course your own uncle and father are on we did a video uh, documentary at the time when we did the sculpture and they both said how your um, great-grandfather would be reluctant to tell people that he wasn't related to them and he'd go yeah, yeah call people cousin and he'd go and they'd say are they really your cousin <laughs> and he'd say like no but <laughs> you know so yeah, it, was, it, it was part of his personality right he didn't want you know he wanted everybody to feel included and, and happy particularly those that are in cleveland with me and people would always you know walk down the street and hey johnny you know that's my cousin and it was more of a, a general term that they would use as opposed to that's specifically my cousin my cousin on my direct my line that i can identify yes right or more of you might consider somebody a friend today like oh yeah that's a friend of mine he would use the term cousin for that. oh that's a cousin of mine almost you know passing it off but sometimes, you know, I, I assume at some point there were some cousins, probably <laughs> right. distant. Um, right. Yeah. That's been one of the great benefits of having the site and going through my grandmother's attic is been learning those types of stories. And I, I didn't know, and frankly, my family didn't know a lot of the genealogy until we got involved with you, Margaret, and the mm -hmm. Irish American Archives Society. Of course, we know people that we interacted with in our lives. We knew Johnny and my grandmother and that part, but as you go back and mm -hmm. have to go back to Ireland and, and learn where the connections were, or in Cleveland when there weren't any records, you know, um, Johnny's mother died and there wasn't even an obituary or nothing in the paper. So right. being able to leverage the resources of, of the Irish American Archives Society and then almost crowdsource people kind of constantly right. coming and telling us bits and pieces of the story. Of things, right. It's been great. And yeah. It allows us to continue that dialogue by having the website, by having the Irish American Archives Society, allows us to kind of continue to build out that story. So maybe we'll continue to learn. Maybe we'll learn who Johnny's, you know, great, great, great grandparents were and tie them back to you know, many multiple generations, or maybe we really will find a cousin. That's, that's <laughs> that genuinely is a cousin. And <laughs> we would be remiss in not um, mentioning the fact that during the centenary championship celebration, you were able to go back to Ireland. And didn't you meet a rather elderly fellow who <laughs> felt that he knew where your family, like the house that Johnny might have left from or, you know, yes. Yeah, that was that was a great experience. So yes, we went back to help celebrate the 100th anniversary of him winning the championship as we did in Cleveland. Um, Ackle also wanted to have some celebrations. And so they treated us very well. They um, brought us back. There was an older gentleman that I met when I was there. Um, his name was Peter Kilbane, Kilban, if you're in Ireland. And he knew exactly from his conversations with um, a gentleman named Anthony uh, Gallagher, who was over 100 years old, not able to travel. I didn't personally meet him, but oh, okay. he knew a lot of the genealogy that we're talking about. He grew up on Ackle. He was there personally when Johnny came back, but he, he personally experienced some of that. Through him, we learned this is where the Kilbane family homestead was. This is, you know, how life was at the time. A lot of great information. And so the gentleman that I met, Peter, was able to say, this is the bar that Johnny came to. And when he came in, he had a Guinness and a shot of whiskey. And so they served me the exact same. It was the grandson of the bartender. Oh my gosh. Wow. And then it was 
you know, we went around to the, the southern part there in Clubmore and said, this is actually the piece of property that your family was evicted from. So mm-hmm. it was up a little hill. I, I hiked up the hill, not that far, a couple hundred yards, hiked up the hill and literally stood on the two room that the outline of the home is still there in, in stone. It was a two room home. So I actually stood there um, and that was the actual place that, you know, the family was from. So th- those sorts of things, because of the connection, because of, you know, our celebrating, because of, you know, the genealogy and the work that we had done, I was able to experience those amazing those aspects, which is just tremendous. And then, you know, my, my father went a couple of years later and, you know, I was able to, to share with him, these are the people that you need to talk to. Mm-hmm. And they were able to take him to the same spot. Oh my gosh. Um, so just a really that cool must be incredible. experience for our family right. um, to be able to literally stand on the property that we were evicted from. Otherwise, it looks like countryside with stone, which is very common in Ireland. And <laughs> right. you, know, you, would never, you would never be able to tell it apart, even if you had a picture. Right. So um, yeah. just, just great experience um, through through what we've been through. Yeah, amazing. And I just want to be clear, because I don't think I was earlier, it wasn't Johnny who left Ireland, but his father. Um, yeah, so you've been on an amazing journey, Kevin. The great part about it is you've been sharing it with people. And if you want to hop on his journey, go to johnnykilbane.com. And as he said, he's always updating it with new information and new stories, etc. So it's some an ongoing process that we're really thrilled and privileged to have been involved with. And we want to thank you, Kevin, for sharing with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. And I would encourage as well, one of the great things about having the website is hearing from people and hearing their stories, um, whether they're connected or not, or it's always, it always makes me happy when I get an email from somebody that I'm not expecting that says, hey, I think there's a connection can you help me figure it out? Um, so I would encourage people to do that if they have stories or memorabilia or anything they're they're willing to share. That's johnnykilbane.com. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for joining Finding Home, the Irish American Archives Society's podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Find more on the IAAS website at irisharchives.org. The Irish American Archives Society is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening.